0: Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm surprisingly robust and casual dressy story expert Lonnie Diane Rich.
1: And I'm film scholar in the goes part of Comes and Goes, Noelle LaCroix. And we're here today to talk about The Killer in Me, the 13th episode of season seven. The Killer in Me aired on February 4th, 2003, and was written by Drew Z. Greenberg and directed by David Solomon. Still Pretty is a fully
0: spoiled, full-spectrum Buffy podcast, so if you haven't seen all of the show, go take care of that, and we'll curse someone we haven't seen in a year with your standard penance malediction because, oh wait, do we need a reason for that? The fact that it's Tuesday and enough? God, being an antagonist is so much
1: hard work, y'all. Is this actually a flower shop or is this one of those things where I'm supposed to play along to show that I know it's really secret ops? Whatever. Let's go on patrol. In The Killer and Me, Giles heads out to take the potentials to the desert to meet with the first slayer. Kennedy has a flu, so she's staying behind. And downstairs in the basement, Spike is chained to the wall, by his choice.
0: And that's the way it's gonna be, until we're sure the first is done making me its bitch.
1: Right then, Spike writhes in pain and tells Buffy the chip has gone off. A moment of confusion, and it goes off again, leaving Spike screaming in pain. Willow goes up to check on Kennedy, who's getting dressed for a night on the town.
0: For someone who's sick, you look surprisingly robust
1: and casual dressing. Kennedy says
0: something's coming down and she has her own mission and needs Willow's help. The mission, as it turns out, is bringing Willow out to the bronze for a date under false pretenses. Downstairs in the basement, Buffy sits with Spike while he tends to the nosebleeds brought on by the chip misfiring. Buffy guesses that it might be the trigger or the soul maybe. Spike says maybe he just wasn't meant to last this long. See, folks? This is why you need FDA approval on shit. Buffy says they'll find a way to fix it, and she gets an idea. She makes a phone call looking for Riley, and the flower shop she's calling doesn't seem to have any idea what she's talking about.
1: Is this actually a flower shop, or or is this one of those uh, things where I'm supposed to play along to show that I know it's really secret ops? At the bronze, Willow talks to Kennedy about Tara, and Kennedy talks all about things she likes about Willow. And then completely dismisses magic. You know, the main thing about Willow. Seems like fairy tale crap to me. Kennedy and Willow go back to the house and then Kennedy kisses Willow. And while they kiss, Willow turns into the brutal, murdery misogynist she flayed alive. As, you know, you do. Kennedy reacts and at first, Willow doesn't know what's going on, but then she looks in the mirror and sees Warren's face. She rushes downstairs and it's farce time where everyone presumes it's the first wearing Warren's face until Buffy punches her in the face and puts that theory to rest. Finally, Kennedy tells them it's Willow, and Willow says she's Willow, but Xander still isn't sure. There are other stories from kindergarten, non-yellow crayon stories in which you don't come out in such a good light. An incident involving Aquaman underoos, for example? You want me to start talking?
0: Hey, Willow! While Spike writhes on the ground in debilitating pain, Willow says that Buffy has other things to do, and she doesn't want anyone seeing her like this, so she heads out. Kennedy follows her, because of course she does, and Willow doesn't want her there, but Kennedy doesn't care, because of course she doesn't. She decides she's going to keep Willow company, and that is that. Meanwhile, Buffy and Spike break into the Initiative's old headquarters, where they had drugs that helped with the chip firing when they first implanted it into Spike. Back at the Summers Ranch, a call comes in from Robeson, the guy Giles was helping during the stupid cliffhanger at the end of Sleeper. Robeson reports that the last thing he saw before blacking out was a bringer about to take Giles' head off with an axe, and when he woke up, the place was empty. So his presumption is that the bringer decapitated Giles and then cleaned the whole thing up to where nothing in the apartment had any blood or pieces of Giles anywhere, because we all know how neat the bringers are. Anyway, this, of course, leads our band of merry Scoobies to jump to the only reasonable conclusion, by which I mean a completely nonsense conclusion, thus fulfilling the stupidest of stupid misleads.
1: Look, I'm not saying it's a happy
0: scenario, but we're dealing with a big bad that can be any dead person it wants.
1: And so they all hop in the clown car and head to the desert to find Giles, who is probably the first, and alone with a bunch of young girls. Meanwhile, Willow and Kennedy arrive at the campus Wicca group meeting and bump into Amy, who vouches for Willow, saying it's definitely her. They do a spell, and at the end of it, Willow slaps Amy but she says it wasn't her. It was Warren. He's taking over. Willow runs out and Kennedy follows because of course she does, but Willow walks off and Kennedy heads back to find Amy who's packing up from the Wicca meeting. Amy lets it slip that she knows Kennedy's a potential and then the jig is up. Oops. Out in the desert, the group of Scoobies find Giles and jump on him. It turns out
0: he's real. He's just not a hugger. You think I'm evil? If I bring a group of girls on a camping
1: trip and don't touch them?
0: At the Initiative headquarters, Buffy and Spike find all the dead demon bodies from the end of Season 4 just left there to rot. They hear noises behind them and a demon attacks. They fight off that demon, then all the lights come on and a bunch of dudes in army fatigues pull guns on them. But then the mean dude comes out and says that Agent Finn directed them to provide whatever assistance Buffy wants, so all this holding guns on you theater was just... theater? I knew it. Government conspiracy. The main dude informs Buffy that the chip is degrading and it'll kill Spike if it's not removed. They can either repair the chip or remove it entirely. It's up to Buffy.
1: Meanwhile, out about town, Warren slash Willow buys a gun at a pawn shop. So that can't be good. Back on campus, Kennedy gets a full confession from Amy, who says she put a penance malediction on Willow. Kennedy wants to know why and of course Amy gives it all up and says that it's about power. Willow always had power and then she almost destroyed the world and no one ever held her responsible for it and… whatever. But then right after refusing to help Kennedy stop it, Amy snaps her fingers and sends Kennedy straight to Buffy's backyard where Warren Willow barges in and points the gun at Kennedy. Kennedy talks Willow through it and Willow says she killed her meaning Tara. I let her be dead. Willow collapses to the ground, sobbing, and Kennedy
0: kneels at her side and kisses her, saying it's just magic, just like fairy tales. She kisses Willow, and then Willow comes back. No more Warren. Hmm. I am good. All right, so, um, Mm -hmm. Noelle. Yes.
1: (laughs) Here we are. Yes, Lonnie. Here we are. Uh, Kind
0: of contractually required (laughs) to discuss the killer in me.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And so we're gonna we're gonna meet that requirement as painlessly as possible.
1: Oh my god! Um, so let's go ahead and start with what your response is to I, this episode. I hate this. I hate this. This episode makes yes. me deeply uncomfortable for reasons y'all may be able to guess if you've been listening to Still Pretty for a while. <laughs>
0: Yeah, let's see. Let's see if you guys can guess what it is about this episode. Like this episode offends me on so many levels. And also like as a writer offends me (laughs) because a lot of the (laughs) shitty writing things that are going on. This is probably one of my least favorite episodes. I mean, okay. I do like the idea that moving on tweaks Willow's guilt and that there is a magical kind of response to that. Not too dissimilar to what happened in same time same place Um, you know which we do reference with the magical noceums and whatever but they ruined that by making it evil Amy all along and then we've got the stupid is Giles the first mislead that is finally thankfully put to rest uh, but in a terrible way Um, and the one like good thing in the episode is like Spike and Buffy working together to solve a problem and I like seeing you know competent people work together and solve problems but that storyline isn't finished it's left in another stupid bullshit cliffhanger. And it's pretty much just a side thing. It's like five minutes of the episode. So um, let's get started. Uh, I guess we can start talking about world building and themes and we'll kind of work our way into all of the things about this episode that are terrible. So
1: go ahead. Take it away, baby. There's so much terrible about this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay. So the main... The main Willow storyline here is Willow's psychological distress ostensibly comes from the idea that if she kisses another woman, Tara is really dead. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. This myth of the one great love and the way it affects a person's life is highly, highly gendered. Mm-hmm. Like this is ve- this feels very much in the Willow and Tara are forever. This one great love, true love story, so much love. And it's this like greatest and highest thing, which we do in fiction mm-hmm. all the time. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, if you're a woman. Yeah. Well, we the, do it in a fiction OK, the but time. the gendered. Yeah. The gendered nature of this. Right. Is mm-hmm. that if a woman has one great love. And that love dies. That's it. Like, that is it for her. She is no longer a sexual being. She pretty Mm -hmm. much disappears. And so does her story. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the the relationship that we have to characters whose partner has died Mm -hmm. in fiction. And I noticed that if a main character is a widower... The Mm -hmm. story can go pretty much anywhere. The story can be about his relationship or not. But if all I tell you about a character is that he's a widower, that story could be about literally anything. And let's not
0: forget, though, that this is where fridging comes from, too, right, is that we fridge these women and then that inspires the man's story of vengeance in which he can just go around like having sex with everybody because he's both torn apart and
1: free, Right, right. Right. We can also do like we can go any direction with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, our favorite example. I mean, yeah, we love like we love the fridging example. Right. But mm-hmm. we also I mean, I think I think the favorite example is that his wife dies and then he goes on a radio show. And now every woman in America wants to date him. And the thing that makes him hot is that his <laughs> wife died and he's sad about it. You know what I mean? Like if. Yeah. Because, all right, because if a man's wife dies Mm -hmm. or a man's partner dies, he's allowed to feel, like, as a character, he's allowed to feel pretty much however... You, the story wants him to feel about that. Mm-hmm. He can be any sort of character. He could mm-hmm. be on a mission to find the person who killed his wife. His wife could be a ghost. His wife's death could be important to the plot later, or not at all. It could be Liam Neeson in Love Actually, where being a widower is treated like a convenient excuse for why he's a single dad. The mm-hmm. Goofy movie is about a widower. <laughs> he could literally be a cartoon dog. like the The end... Mm-hmm of this relationship, the death of this one love or whatever, means whatever you want it to mean. And it can mean nothing. But if a main character is a widow, there's pretty much one story. She's a crazy old white lady living in a mansion with a cake on her head. (laughs)
0: Oh, my God. Yes, you're absolutely right. I am 100%, 1000% in support of your read on this. Um, and I think that Nicholas Sparks entire oeuvre is textual cultural evidence an illustration of how this one true love idea serves the patriarchy, to which I say, Ugh, right? Because it's always about this guy and his one true love dies, and then he gets to go on fucking everything that moves. But he had that one true love, you know, he still has a story, he still has a life afterward. So he gets to both be a romantic hero and be free to fuck as many women as he wants, so that's kind of like the the ultimate service. And also that one of the the like biggest like you know wealthiest romance writers in history is this man who writes that story over and over and over again. Really, really irritating. Um, and that said, so like I completely like a thousand percent completely see what you're saying, but. My read on Willow, um, like her final releasing of Tara, um, to me is just is colored by personal experience um, and a personal experience, which I've talked a bit about on the Big Strong Yes podcast. or um, I think we've all had that experience to varying degrees of something happening that is so bad that you try to reach back in time and undo it. And if it's bad enough or traumatic enough, part of you can get stuck in that moment between when the precious thing drops and when it breaks. And I've been stuck in that moment to varying degrees for a number of years, and part of me is still stuck there kind of a little bit. It's like being stuck in a pose with one hand trying desperately to reach back in time to catch the precious thing, to preserve it, to prevent the damage and the heartbreak of it. Meanwhile, as time moves forward, it pulls the rest of you with it, and it gets harder and harder, more and more painful to keep that one arm reaching back to try to catch the precious thing. And eventually you have to stop reaching. And that's what I see here with Willow in that one moment. The the, we were supposed to be forever text absolutely supports your reading of this, Noelle, and I I absolutely see that. Uh, But the moment, the I let her be dead moment feels to me like what happens when I allow myself to forgive myself just a little bit for what happened in my life. So That part of it, that moment, I really like a lot. Like in the middle of this terrible, terrible episode that I hate in almost every level, um, that one moment where she says that, she says, I let her be dead. The release of that, you know, um, was really personally meaningful to me. Um, And in an episode like this, it's nice to have... Like one, no matter how tiny that moment is, like one moment where I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. That's actually OK. Like, I actually kind of like that. Um, So I'm I'm like, you know, I'm not torn. It's your reading. Like what they intended was your reading of it. <laughs> but the precious broken thing resonates in that moment for me.
1: Well, and I think that they could have done. I'm, first of all, I'm really, really glad that that's your experience of that moment. Mm-hmm. Like, I I love that. I mean, I love that different people can see different things in mm-hmm. fiction. I mean, I think that's rad. <laughs> I do wish that they had handled that a little bit better because I think there's a oh, great yeah. story there about mm-hmm. the the intensely complicated feelings in moving forward versus mm-hmm. not or... You know, what it means to acknowledge to yourself that something is really over. Or in this case, that someone is really dead. Mm-hmm. And that that the hardest thing that you have to do is continue on with your life. Mm-hmm. But I just wish, I wish that that had been... Um, I mean, we ta- I think we talked about this last time with Willow's grief and Willow's feelings about being the object of someone else's desire after losing this this precious person. Just never really... They're just never really there. It's never mm-hmm. really acknowledged. We we never go into, how does all of this feel to Willow? And so then there's yeah. this moment where she says, I let her be dead, And I don't know. I don't know. I want to like it because I think that those complicated stories about grief are really, really important and really necessary. Mm -hmm. But it just I think. okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think by that point for me. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Like the anti-queerness of this episode is just piled on so heavy Mm -hmm. that it completely clouds my read of anything that happens in that final scene yeah and there's some Mm -hmm. good stuff that happens in that final scene actually Um, but it is you know yeah it's really crusted in a lot of you know
0: like nastiness
1: yeah I mean the anti the anti-lesbian sentiment and the Mm anti-trans sentiment are really hard to grapple with um Mm -hmm. But I'm going to try, <laughs> mostly because if I were a queer person watching this episode and not about mm-hmm. to podcast about it, I would be thinking, oh, I really hope they unpack this storyline. Mm-hmm. OK, so as I unpack this a little bit, I'm going to be using the word lesbian because that's mm-hmm. a word Willow and Tara use when they're together. Um, and I know that currently, for some people, that word has a lot of anti-trans sentiment built into Mm -hmm. it i'm not using it that way that's not how i use it in my life um but you know just to be just to be clear this is this is how i'm using that word Mm -hmm. so okay i see a lot of anti-lesbianism in this episode specifically Mm -hmm. and i believe I believe very strongly in giving people the benefit of the doubt. I don't think anyone set out to write a harmful, hurtful storyline about lesbians. Mm -hmm. And yet. Yeah. The folks who wrote this episode grew up with two primary ideas about lesbians, if they had any sense of lesbians at all. Mm -hmm. Lesbians are women who can't get a man, probably because they're too ugly, aka not feminine enough. Mm -hmm. And Lesbians are women who want to be men. These ideas that turning into a man might be the worst thing and that turning into a man would be inherently toxic and harmful is one that plagues the queer community as we speak. Mm -hmm. The number of masculine of center non-binary people and trans men who talk about putting off taking life-affirming and often life-saving hormones because of the belief that testosterone will make them into harmful asshats is staggering. Mm -hmm. This is not, The Killer in Me is not a story about transness, but it's not not a story about transness. Mm -hmm. I think that what's going on here is that in trying to write a story that undermines the Lesbians just want to be men, myth by showing how deeply Willow does not want this. The writers backed into some seriously sticky anti trans territory. Mm -hmm. Kennedy says if you take a step back, there's a certain element of humor here. And I say there absolutely is not. Mm -hmm. There's a total lack of awareness that there might be queer people in the audience. Mm -hmm. Because people laugh at what they relate to. I don't think any of this is funny to, Mm -hmm. I I don't, I can't imagine this being funny to a gay woman specifically. But like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the joke other than you're making an anti-lesbian, anti-trans joke this Mm -hmm. it's very distressing I find the whole thing really really upsetting (laughs) like the emotional male gaze of it I think is what I'm reacting most strongly to Mm -hmm. and the the I call it like this is gay women written by straight people like this is the problem it's like queer narratives this is a queer narrative by and for straight people Mm -hmm. or at least that's how it reads to me I mean, that was my first thought while listening to Kennedy and Willow talk at the Bronze. If it's not, if if by some miracle of 2003, like, it's not gay women written by straight people, if maybe some actual lesbians were consulted on this episode, it's definitely written for straight people. The when slash how did you know you were gay conversation is a conversation that queer people have but not like this, mm-hmm. question mark? And certainly not on a first kind of date. Mm-hmm. Um, And not even 100% of the time, always. I mean, one of my dearest, queerest friends and I have never had this conversation. We've known each other for almost 20 years, and I have no idea when or how they discovered <laughs> they were queer. <laughs> so... The- This scene reads very straight to me in that it assumes queer people lead with our biographies in a narrativized way, Mm -hmm. right? I knew I was gay at this time. I came out at this time and so on. There's the implied conversation about coming out with Willow describing her mother's reaction. And because it's Pride Month, I'm feeling extra salty. But the straight obsession with coming out stories is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Coming out stories... Mm -hmm. Almost always center the straight people in the queer person's life. How did your mom take this thing that is deeply personal to you? Like, how did so-and-so react when you told them? Coming out Mm -hmm. stories center the experiences of other people grappling with your queerness. Mm -hmm. So I say, like, written for straight people, 100%. What I appreciate about the scene at the Bronze and about Kennedy's presence in this episode in general is the attempt to give Willow some queer community. Willow has been through the identity ringer and has had no one to talk to about any of this. Like we've done the our friend Willow is gay and we accept her thing, but that's not what Willow needs. The one maybe affirming thing about this episode from a queer perspective is the suggestion that being accepted by your straight friends is not nearly enough because mm-hmm. again that makes your queerness about the people around you about the mm-hmm. straight people around you and their comfort with you rather than your own experience of your sexuality um yeah uh, that's a brilliant analysis, and
0: I'm curious. I don't know if you want to do this. We can edit it out if you don't. But my question is: What would you do if you had this scene to rewrite? How would
1: you write it? How would I write it? Um, hmm. I want to say first that I'm not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I like. What do you want to see in okay, these stories? What I want to yeah. see. What What I want to see is more of willow and kennedy getting to know each other like Mm -hmm. actually having conversations about what's going on you know about the things that they would talk about they would talk Mm -hmm. about what was going on in their immediate situations um and i would even allow for this this kennedy lies and gets to get willow to the bronze but I don't think I would frame it necessarily as a you're cute and I want to kiss you kind of thing. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that could exist. Like, I think some, some mutual flirting would be appropriate. I would also just this, okay, <laughs> I'm going to back <laughs> up. I'm going to back up to Willow making tea for Kennedy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the way Buffy plays that as, ooh, you're making tea for a girl. And it's like... Mm-hmm. Willow gives zero indication in that scene that there's anything sexy about that. Willow is literally yeah. making a cup of tea for a sick person, which very lesbian, first of all. Like <laughs> this is what we do. Like we are the hospice nurses of the community. You know, like it's uh-huh. it, it's ridiculous. But like mm-hmm. I would I would want some like if they were setting this up to be a romantic relationship. I would want that little bit of sexiness from Willow also. And she could be conflicted about it. That would be fine. That would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. Then we could maybe really actually explore this. Like, what does it mean to have had a great connection with someone who is now dead and you still love them very much and you still wish they were here, but also you're like maybe kind of intrigued by this sexy person who's now living in your house all the time. Like, that's a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, it but if it were going to be a kind of mutual attraction thing, I want to see that from Willow a little bit and not have mm-hmm. Buffy do the have fun bringing her tea, which again feels very straight in the well, mm-hmm. you're two gay women, so you obviously must be into each other. No, like gay women can just be friends, <laughs> like they really mm-hmm. can. Um, yes. So I would want, if we're going to do, if we're going to do a a, um, romantic thing with them, I want to see a little bit on Willow's end. Yeah. I mean, really. Just just a skosh. Like, it doesn't even need to be much. Just an indication Mm -hmm. that she's maybe kind of interested. But then I would have them have a conversation see i think that they could have a conversation at the bronze that was playful and flirty and getting to know each other but through the lens of what's going on in the story mhm i I don't know. There's a way to do it. There's definitely a way to do it. I mean, get me Desiree Akhavan on the phone. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, let's, you know, like let's make this happen. Because we right. do need, we we absolutely need more stories of queer people getting to know each other romantically or otherwise that are not. So when did you know you were gay? And when did, and now I like <laughs> Kennedy's little Gone with the Wind, you know, I was five and wanted to sweep Scarlett O'Hara off her feet. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's, like, that's very cute. And it's kind of wholesome in a way, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not what I want (laughs) from that scene. (laughs) Well, at this point and
0: in this scene, like, uh, you know, I mean, for me coming into this, like, clearly, I've I've had a problem with Kennedy from the beginning. I feel that this, this what you're talking about is exactly my problem with it, is that we are not seeing that encouragement from Willow. If anything, we're seeing it making Willow really, really super uncomfortable. And Kennedy not taking her foot off the gas at all. Um, I don't care for Kennedy lying to Willow and tricking her. I also feel like if this trip out to the um out to the woods to do the vision quest thing although that was hugely problematic for other reasons when we did that uh uh you know a couple of times already when we visited the first layer um if that's an important thing to being a potential and to fighting this fight, then Kennedy not taking that seriously is also another thing. Like we're in, you know, deep shit here, and everybody has to pull. You know, um, I don't like the way that she pushes Willow and refuses to make space for how Willow might be feeling about all of this. Um, it's a big red flag for me for someone who does not value consent, and I do not care for it. But a little encouragement from Willow in any of this would have would have metered that a lot for me. You know, um, and I. I also hate that Kennedy dismisses magic as fairy tale crap, which is hugely central to who Willow is and and you know what she does and where her power is, and that to me also feels uh, kind of shitty. So the, so Willow and Kennedy, although at the end when Kennedy walks Willow through her grief, you know, and talks her through it. As as much as by that point, everything's already shit on. So, like, you know, pulling out a thing is still going to have crap on it. Um, But that was probably the most I've liked Kennedy to date. But all of yeah. that is, is a problem for me. Yeah.
1: No, Kennedy's great. Kennedy is great in that last scene. And I yeah. think that if... I, I think that, that just some more clarity in both of these characters and what we're doing with them... Mm-hmm. Would have helped quite a bit. Like Kennedy, at this point, when they're talking at the Bronze, is still there to be gay. Like, sh- like her role is she is gay. But That's because her job. Mm-hmm. we are, because we are, I mean, I'm presuming because we are mm-hmm. cis straight men writing this, we're like, I don't know what do gay girls talk about besides <laughs> being gay and enjoying sex with women. Like, it's just not. I don't know. I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like yeah. it. I mm-hmm. don't... I, mm, I don't like it. And I want I I'd, want yeah. to like it because I like the idea of queer community for Willow mm-hmm. so, so much. Like, yeah. so much. It is so needed. It has been so missing from Willow's life. It probably is exactly the thing that she needs to help her process mm-hmm. that grief because... Yeah. Again, like, your straight friends are lovely and accepting, but they're not going to understand your queer experience. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's something to which, like, the original
0: idea had some value, but the execution of it is failing,
1: you know? And so, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, really disappointing. Yeah. And for Kennedy to dismiss magic as fairy tale crap when she has seen Willow using magic and being affected by it, I mean, it's Kennedy. Kennedy is the one who takes magic seriously in the moment that Willow is using it in Showtime and is like, it's mm-hmm. hurting her. Yep. To yep. then backpedal and be like, I don't know, it's fairy tale crap. Love it. Like, I mm, no. Yeah. No. And if we wanted it to be a kind of the lady doth protest too much sort of thing of like mm, I'm just not really into magic, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. like that could have been done too. So Yeah. No, just all of it just so poorly poorly handled it's just
0: not great and Kennedy's competence is one of the things competence in these areas of slayerness and magical and mystical right like that is one of her strongest points as a character at this point like her competence and her uh, which is another reason why you know the work like one of Kennedy's things is that she's good at the work of being a slayer or being a potential slayer and then she lies to skip out on one of the things part of that work you know, so all of that I find and the lying to, well, like there's so much of it. There's this core that could have been good, but the way it was executed, it kind of all falls apart, you know, yeah. and that becomes extremely disappointing. Not entirely unlike the dumb Giles false twist, which finally, finally, finally <laughs> has been staked and is
1: dead, 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 dead. Um, oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. And for the yeah. answer to be Giles is just not a hugger is like so.
0: I don't know. It's so fucking know. stupid. Okay. Go off.
1: Go off on the bad yes. twists, Lonnie, because...
0: Here's here's my rant. Yeah. And then while I rant, you can take a breath and prep your next rant. And we'll just
1: bounce <laughs> off of each other for the rest we'll of the episode. We can just go back and forth in that that circle forever. Absolutely. <laughs> that circle of ranting. All right. So this
0: whole thing from a writer's perspective is just stupid. And the Giles line at the end that is supposed to be funny, you think I'm evil if I bring a group of girls on a camping trip and don't touch them isn't funny. Like, okay, I'm not gonna lie. It's like a well constructed it, joke. It's the construction of it. Yeah. But it's, like, it's not funny, funny, but
1: not funny, you guys. Like,
0: well, Because, you know, like, men molesting young girls is not a funny topic to me. You know, yeah. um, I find that to be not Hilarious. Yeah. Um, and so, all of that kind of at the end of something that has offended me as a writer to then get the double gut punch of being offended as a human um, really just irritating. So, last week I talked about three things that make a good twist. One, a good twist uses the momentum of audience assumptions to fuel the belief in the false reality. Two, a good twist has no flag on the play that once you go back and look at it, everything lines up, you know, and they, nobody was lied to. And three, it was right. In front of your face the whole time. Now here's where the Giles twist falls down. The audience assumption is not actually in the false reality. It's in the real reality. Mm-hmm. That Giles is actually Giles. Like showing him never actually touching anything or anyone is so that we can live straight to number two and number three. No flag on the play. And when you go back, so when you go back and review the material, it's consistent with the twist. And it was right in front of your face the whole time, right? But you didn't see it. So two and three were actually living to. But the fact is that the presumption is not the false reality, it's the actual reality. So you're basically just messing around with us. So in this case, if Giles was in fact the first, this would be an absolutely solid, good twist. But number one on this is violated because it's not in service to a false reality. Um, This is not a twist because Giles is not the first. So it's a false twist because in the end, the reality that we thought was the reality all along is actual reality and nothing has changed. And here, for all the writers out there is how you can test for a false twist. Nothing changes. Narrative value comes from meaning, and meaning in narrative comes from change. And here, nothing changes. Believing Giles to be the first didn't lead us to anything new. If it did, it would still be a false twist, but at least believing Giles to be the first would have led to some kind of discovery about the first and how the first works. That would give us change, which would give us some narrative value. But that is not even the case. We don't even get that with this. It is simply a lie and a fake out, a jump scare and a cheap trick, and finally, it's over. So the twist yay. is that
1: there was no twist. The <laughs> twist is that
0: there was no twist and and uh, whoever may have noticed. You know, that Giles doesn't touch anything, especially after like the axe flying at his head and we don't see how that ends. Like all of that, you know, if somebody noticed that and then the whole time they're suspecting, I'm sure there were very, very perceptive watchers who kind of pulled that together and, and, uh, and, and were thinking that Giles was the first. But in the end, if you did, if you were super perceptive and you did that and then in the end you discover that this clever thing that you figured out was actually nothing. That's also irritating.
1: It reminds me of late series X-Files when they just went Mm -hmm. completely off the rails and they're like, we wrapped up the storyline and it was this all along. And then they're like, oh, just kidding. That was a fake. And it was really this other thing. And you're like, come on, you can't. No, no. no, The twist can't be that there was no twist. That's not. exactly. That's not. Exactly. Now, it. It's, and it's annoying because I do love the Scooby-Doo-ness of, you know, mm-hmm. Xander and Anya and Dawn are going to get in the van and go to the desert. They're going to tackle Giles. and Like, it's cute, but it really is. Mm-hmm. It's, it does nothing. It does absolutely nothing. End, yeah. It's just a
0: waste of time. It's a cheap trick. Like, you get to have all that stuff if you actually have narrative being delivered, if the twist is actually a twist. But if you don't, you don't get to have all that stuff. Well, you know, you have not earned it.
1: Yeah, especially in an episode where we have other stuff going on. Like, Mm -hmm. there's like real story happening (laughs) as well, potentially.
0: Right. This is just spinning wheels. If you had taken all of this out, we would have missed nothing. Nothing would change if you remove this whole thing. And that's a really good litmus test for writers. If there is a scene that you can remove and nothing fundamentally changes, then the only reason why you have that scene is because you like what's in it. You think it's funny or you think it's sexy or you think it's something, but it's not actually moving your story forward. And the thing is, is that if you're funny or sexy or whatever in a scene without moving the story forward, you can also be those things while moving the story forward. Um, So do that. Like, that's the choice you make make sure there's narrative value in everything that you do within a story.
1: Well, if the value is narrative, right? If if what yeah. you're if what you are creating is narrative and that's where you mm-hmm. want your focus to be? Yes. Absolutely, mm-hmm. 100%. Because then I am also here that. for mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of queer representation, I'm thinking about <laughs> I'm thinking about the director's mm-hmm. cut of but I'm a cheerleader that mm-hmm. adds I think 5 minutes back mm-hmm. to the film and it is five minutes that does not move the story forward at all. Mm-hmm. But it is five minutes of pure delight. And there are, <laughs> cu- and it, mm-hmm. it like, we need those little breaks sometimes. So yeah. mm-hmm. depending on, again, like, depending on the story that you're telling, yes and no yeah. on the, this should move the story forward. I mean, I think we can move, <laughs> like, we can move yeah. the delight forward, too. Right. Well, five minutes, too. In
0: a whole story, is, yeah, in a ninety-five you know, minute, five movie. Minutes. yeah, when you're spending all your time falsely building something that appears to be narrative because you think it's cute, you know what I'm saying? Like you're putting yeah, yeah, up yeah. all of this scaffolding. Oh yeah. Then that's something that if you're putting up the narrative scaffolding, make sure you've got narrative value in it. You know, yes. and that's just one 100%. of the things as a writer that I think you should do that. But there are also going to be moments that just kind of build character and build like, and that's okay too in a particular moment. But this is a whole story line that we've been building since Giles first appeared in Sleeper you know so we have been doing this and treating it like it's a narrative thing and it's not a narrative thing Um, so knowing the difference honestly is the big value for you as a writer is to be able to know what it is that you're doing and do it consciously I think that these are things that are done because as writers the first thing you do is mimic and sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're a mimic you don't know why you're doing something you're just Mm -hmm. doing it because you've seen it done so understanding the value behind it I think is really valuable and then as a writer you get to decide if you want to keep it or if you don't. This is a case where this is just a cheap trick from beginning to end. Well, and
1: I think that that ties in really nicely with the whole episode, this whole episode and my problems with it and your problems with it, which is know why you're doing what you're doing.
0: Yes, exactly. And do it consciously. Like, think about it. Yeah. The Buffy Spike storyline is another thing. This is in the background. It's unfinished. I think it's interesting because here we have Spike with the chip malfunctioning and all of this stuff. And Buffy's trying to figure out how to save him. Um, And we leave with the repair the chip or remove it your choice moment. But we don't see Buffy make the choice. So this is actually another cliffhanger because we don't finish it. We don't find out. It's a game changer when we find out that. She had it removed, right? So that's legit, right? But we don't Mm -hmm. find out that until later on. Um, But in this moment, we just sort of leave that story there. And then it's not even like the big don't, do at the end of the episode. It's just <laughs> mid episode. And yeah. clearly, Sarah Michelle Gellar was, was sick during the filming of this. So you maybe can they... hear it. Yeah, it's yeah, really sad poor that thing. first
1: scene. She's a little oh, froggy. She's
0: sitting there with that cup of tea. And I'm like, we're talking about how Kennedy's sick. And I'm like, oh, Kennedy's not the one who's sick. Maybe, yep. you know, um, so maybe she was sick and they couldn't film the I, I have no this last scene I, or that would have. Ended that or whatever. I have absolutely no idea. But it's a poor choice, especially because this is the B story. And by the time we get to where Willow is finally allowing herself to grieve over Tara and move forward, we're not even thinking about what did Buffy do.
1: Right. Right. You know? And they're trying to do like I, I see these inklings of like we're trying to do an internalized something something story with both Willow mm-hmm. and Spike this Mm -hmm. idea of like there's something in there and it's taking you over and you need to process it or you need to deal with it or whatever but it just doesn't Mm -hmm. it just falls flat and then we resolve the willow story ish but we don't do anything with spike and uh no
0: it's just it's just bad um and then here's another bad thing which i i i'm torn on because I love Elizabeth Allen. I love Elizabeth Allen as Amy. I think that she's amazing. She's always a delight to see, even when she's given shitty work to do, as in this episode. Um, yeah. She does it really well. Like, you know, um, so Amy is uh, stupidly written and her motivation is terrible. And she says she's not going to help Kennedy. And then a moment later, she snaps her finger to send Kennedy exactly where she's supposed to be, I guess because she thought that Willow would shoot Kennedy at as Warren or whatever. Like, I don't even, I don't understand any of it. She's like, let me explain, first of all, my entire motivation for doing this. Let me confess (laughs) to it entirely. Um, Let me, you know, do this whole explanation and then refuse to help you, but then help you by, you know, transporting you across town instantaneously. All of it is so... Freaking weird. Not to mention the fact that when Kennedy is transported across, it's like daytime then. So this has been all night. So like at what point in the evening, like how many hours went by where Kennedy was just like, what'd you do, Amy? And Amy was like, well, let me sit here and explain it to you completely in detail. Like, it it all just felt so weird.
1: I don't understand. I I don't understand the timing of any of that. Mm -hmm. I don't understand i mean this is here here's an indication that something's terrible amy explains her whole plan question mark Mm -hmm. but i still don't get it i'm like but but what was the plan really like the idea seems to be that like willow willow can do horrible things and still have friends and amy does Uh, horrible things and doesn't have friends and it's like maybe I, i don't know i don't know
0: it's, it's it is all weird. Like what was she hoping? It was just that she wanted to slap Willow. And she also said that she didn't know how the the um malediction penance thing yeah. was going to affect her and that and that what she does, how she interprets, you know, herself and her regret is how that Uh, presents itself and so that she chose to be warren because that is the thing that she feels penance over but but when we talk about it though it's not about warren it's about tara but then warren killed tara so presenting herself as the guy who killed tara when she says i killed her i let her be dead yeah that that's the whole connection there it's all like but but where amy fell in she just wanted to fuck with Willow that she wasn't trying to do anything in particular. She was just fucking with Willow.
1: Yeah. Now if Amy wanted to uh see now we're treading into we're treading we're treading into different anti-lesbian territory. But if mm-hmm. Amy wanted to be with Willow mm-hmm. then there's maybe a better story there. If it was a want to be her want to be with her kind of a but no you can't no i don't i don't don't know that there's any way to save that i don't know i don't know story
0: because because she doesn't i mean she's kind of doing the sort of chaos thing that ethan rain might have done right where i don't have a particular plan i'm just gonna throw this in the water in sunnydale and see what comes up you know right um except that she is very specifically focused on willow and on taking willow down a peg by making her deal with her guilt but how much amy like amy seems to know amy seems to have been watching the show actually yes very amy is and watching like, the show 100 amy is clearly watching the show and i think it's always wonderful to see elizabeth ann allen like she's fantastic but um uh, you know give her something like give her yeah. something real and something Um, something interesting. There was that whole thing about like in season six about all those years that you failed to make me not a rat, you know, that like her history and and time lived as a rat. She's getting vengeance for that or something. But I, you know, none of it, none of it in the end really holds together, at least not for me.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean... It's another one of those things where I'm like, I want to like this, but I can't get there. I can't get there. Yeah. Especially since we start off the transformation with this, like Willow, Willow's like, oh, it was probably me. I probably did it. Which, mm, interesting that the first mm-hmm. thing Willow does is blame herself for the transformation, right? That's mm-hmm. interesting and problematic. But I like that we address the emotional connection to magic for willow and they hey it wouldn't be the first time this had happened Mm -hmm. but then i mean and i like i like that amy doesn't know what the magic is gonna do because then we do get that like it's willow's psychology making her transform in this way something something but What's really gross about this relationship to Mm self-blame is that as the magic continues to take over, Willow literally becomes responsible for Warren's feelings Mm -hmm. in this like really gross way. And it's gross because it's gross on the surface because we're seeing Willow become Warren and we acknowledge that warren is gross Mm -hmm. but there's also something here about how women have this and again i'm speaking in binary gender terms for ease of use while talking about visual media there's this way that women are supposed to be morally superior to men Mm -hmm. and also be the vessels for men's feelings And I just, oh, I just hate it. I just hate it. Hard stop.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's... And, you know, seeing Warren, uh, seeing Willow express Warren, it's it's like Warren's actually in there trying to come out, which is a different thing from Willow seeing herself as Warren because she feels like she killed Tara when she kissed
1: Kennedy. Right. All of that is... It's so problematic. Like it, it is so problematic yeah. on on so many levels. This the mm-hmm. equation, the suggestion that Willow's psyche equates Warren's shooting Tara with Willow's experiencing desire or mm-hmm. desirability. Like that these things are the same somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is so fucked up on so it's also many levels. Weird.
0: It really, really is. It really is. So I think that maybe now is the time to ask the most relevant question to all of this. Uh, <gasps> Noelle, for
1: the killer in me, oh, God. what is your favorite part? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I actually like the kiss at the end. Mm-hmm. By the time it happens, I'm too mad to really enjoy it. <laughs> but. <laughs> But Kennedy shows a lot of courage in that moment. I mean, Willow is literally waving a gun at her. Mm-hmm. And I like that she doesn't back down from that. And I like the parallel with Xander's love bringing Willow back to herself at the end of season six. I mean, Xander's deep, long-standing friendship brings Willow out of rage and despair and back into her heart. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy brings her back into the reality of her body and into her queer community. And I like that. I like mm-hmm. and appreciate that. Even with this, you know, shit trifle of a <laughs> hell dessert layered <laughs> on top of it. I mean, the idea yeah. of that, I, I really, I really like. And I like that Kennedy... I like that Kennedy comes around on magic a little bit, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, earlier she says it's fairy tale crap. And then in the end, she says, I'm beginning to understand how it works. It is fairy tale, but it's fairy tale in this positive way. And then she kisses her and brings her back to herself, you know? Um, so I think that that's, you know, that's a nice moment. Again, it's it, it comes at the end of an episode that is actively, like, if somebody's actively smacking you for 45 minutes and then in the last minute says, oh, gee, you're pretty. Like, you, you just, you still. <laughs>
1: Let me get like, you an ice pack. You, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly.
0: Like, uh, and then then compliments you in some way. It's like, yeah, it's just it's it's weird. Um, I think for me, my favorite part is the moment that Willow allows the precious thing to drop. Mm. The moment that she says, "I I have to release this. I have to move forward." Um, and I like that. And I like that. You know, Willow gets to have a kiss. That she gets to have this. You know, romantic. Follow up after having been, you know, widowed by her one true love. Like, here we were letting that go, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, so that's nice. And I like that
1: moment. So there you go. (laughs) We did it. We made it. Okay. We did it. We found our way through. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, follow at Chipperish on Twitter and use the hashtag StillPretty. Or as a Patreon supporter at any level, you can join the Chipperish Discord group and chat live with other listeners and the hosts.
0: Hey, did you guys know Patreon supporters who chip in at the $10 and up level get to attend show recordings live? And we've got a stretch goal. Very soon, we're going to unlock the monthly Chip Chat, where I will host a private one-hour monthly Zoom call open to every supporter to talk about whatever, no matter what amount you pledge. So if you haven't pledged your support yet, now is the time.
1: Speaking of supporters, this episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stefania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message to our power producers... Your promises of happy fields and dancing schnauzers and being demigods won't work on me anymore.
0: While you're waiting for the next episode of Still Pretty, here are some things you can do. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or rat out Xander about his Aquaman underoos. We will be back next time with First Date, the 14th episode of season seven. Until then,
1: have you seen you? <coughs> I have some I have some heterophobia in my throat this morning. Excuse me. Okay. <laughs>